Well, they were leaders among men, appointed to represent the monarchy in Australia. Each week, we're learning more about the lives and achievements of some of Australia's governors and governors-general through the eyes of the University of New England's history experts, from Captain Arthur Phillip to Australia's first female appointments. This week, we're finding out about one of Australia's most important vice-regal officers, the first superintendent of the Port Phillip district. Many see him as the founder of Victoria and uh, one of its most important early influences. We're guided this morning by Dr Richard Scully from the University of New England. Hello, Richard. Good morning, Kelly. It's good to be back. So what do we know of Charles Joseph Latrobe and his childhood and education? Well, he had a very unusual background for uh, for what his eventual role was uh, was to be. He was, uh, he was born in London, but he was born from a family that was actually descended from, from French Protestants, from Huguenots. Uh, Huguenots had been expelled from... France during the uh, the Catholic Wars of Religion in the 16th century. Um, his father was a clergyman in the Moravian Church. He was also an artist, a musician. He was a composer. He was actually really significant culturally. He was instrumental, if you want to pardon the pun, um, in introducing Haydn, Mozart, and other of the most significant musicians uh, from the continent into England. He um, he uh, made sure his children's education was well looked after, and uh, Charles Latrobe was. Uh, was originally going to be directed towards entering the the Moravian Church. Uh, he was educated first in Manchester before being uh, sent out to Switzerland. So he's growing up in a time of the Napoleonic Wars. What influence did they have on his worldview? Well, they had a significant influence in terms of the growth of a British kind of nationalism. Uh, that nationalism vo- uh, really valued the the Protestant faith as opposed to French Catholicism or even atheism. Uh, The continuity of institutions, opposition to revolutionary thinking, opposition to militarism, the kind of thing that was epitomised by Napoleon. Um, It also emphasised this new culture that was emerging of the time of Romanticism that affected Charles Latrobe quite significantly, particularly because that Romanticism was bound up with ideas of nation and national ideas, emotional ideas, connections particularly with the natural environment. Now, with that sort of expanding world, what kind of cultural activities of the age did he like to engage in? He was certainly a man of his age. He, he really did imbibe the culture. Uh, he was at the forefront of all of these new fashions that were bound up with romanticism and leisure activities like mountaineering being one of the key ones. Um, before this period, mountains were places that you would literally go out of your way to avoid. Uh, but in the 1820s, that really changed because uh, a lot of young men like Latrobe actually started seeking out these these very dangerous uh, places to, to test their mettle, but also to imbibe the wonders of nature like, like no generation before them. And Latrobe climbed countless alpine peaks in a sort of a three-year period from 1824 to 1826. Oh, great adventurer. Absolutely. Exciting. Now, he also ventured to uh, the the USA, which seems an amazing decision. Where did he go and what did he do there? Well, he's uh, well known to have travelled all the way down the Mississippi River. He uh, spent some time in New Orleans, for instance. He, uh, he also managed to cross all the way west to Texas, which was actually at that stage still part of Mexico, all along the uh, the wildest untamed frontier uh, in the world at that stage. Um, he, he went there largely as a chaperone for a student that he was tutoring. Um, after he'd moved to Switzerland and completed his education, he became a tutor. The uh, the Comte de Portalet was uh, his, his young charge, but... Um, Given that they were sort of roughly the same age, it's probably likely that it was more of a grand tour than sort of a, a school excursion. Um, yeah, he actually he actually travelled along with uh, with Washington Irving, who was the famous author of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle. And just to give a sense of 
how educated and how much a man of his time he was. Latrobe actually ended up publishing four books uh, devoted to his travels uh, everywhere from the Alps through to, to Mexico. What impact uh, did that trip have on his life, do you think? I think it really was a significant foundational moment in his life. He was exposed to a colonial frontier. He was uh, sort of uprooted from the comforts of Europe, even the relative comforts of, of Grand Tour Europe. And it, it did fire a kind of a, an enthusiasm for uh, for seeking out the unknown, I think. And when he returns to Britain, uh, he falls in love. Who captured his heart? Well, he ended up falling in love with the young daughter of his uh, his landlord in, in Switzerland and, and indeed the cousin of the student that he went to the USA with, uh, Sophie de Montmolin. And they uh, they married in Bern, in uh, Switzerland, in the the British legation, which is akin to the consulate in uh, in September of 1835. Did they have many children? Uh, they ended up having, uh, I think, a son and three daughters, uh, if my memory serves me. So yeah, it, it, one of these families that uh, is certainly of its time. Now, for him, how was his income working? W- was he being paid much for his his sort of tutoring, or was there a family inheritance he was surviving on? Tutoring was uh, was really his sort of bread and butter, partly because it also came with uh, with room and board, as it were. Um, but he he was linked into his uh, his family network as well, his father's uh, pastimes as a clergyman and indeed a reformer as well. So he was linked into that kind of uh, life, not, 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 the, uh, not the, the wealthy landed elite that we perhaps have seen in previous programs. In these roles. So how did he come to be sent to the West Indies? What was the task he was given there? Well, he was, as I say, linked into his father's uh, reforming agenda. Uh, his father had contact with William Wilberforce, who was the great anti-slavery uh, man, and this was the time of the anti-slave movement. And Latrobe was uh, was sent out to the West Indies to investigate the educational prospects for all of these slaves who were going to be freed. Um, the British Empire outlaw, outlaws slavery in, in 1833. So this is a, a serious uh, undertaking, very much in keeping with the Britain of the period. And what, what kind of outcomes did he find or what, what reports did he bring back? Well, ultimately the reports um, take a number of iterations before they're sort of instituted and a lot of this, quite unfortunately, turns out to be best of intentions. Um, these things aren't implemented to the letter. But um, it's it's not surprising, I think, that his, uh, his relatively good performance on this mission um, raises his profile so much that he's uh, considered for the commission as superintendent of the uh, the Port Phillip district uh, all the way in New South Wales on the other side of the world. Right, so he accepts that role obviously. What What's happening in Australia when he arrives? Well, he's arriving to basically cha- ta- take charge of a uh, an illegal frontier settlement by <laughs> Melbourne, which uh, was set up in 1835. The, the government in Sydney is really desperate to gain control over this, uh, this colony that's expanding really beyond control. Uh, Melbourne's about 3,000 people by the time Latrobe arrives, and uh, he's uh, he's placed junior to Sir George Gipps, who is the governor of New South Wales, who's particularly concerned that the illegal squatting expansion is pushing beyond the boundaries of settlement and creating violence and tension all along the frontier with the Aborigines. So Gipps is is very well known as prosecuting the uh, the Mile Creek, the Waterloo Creek massacres. So Gipps is uh, is really taking Latrobe on to to uh, bring civilization to uh, to the frontier. What what kind of tasks did did he sort of try to attend to first then as he steps into the role? Well, um, he was ad- initially advised really just to keep the colony out of debt and maintain peace. 
But uh, Latrobe had his own ideas. He was quite close to, to Gibson, had the same um, connection to reform movements, etc. But Latrobe really, he wasn't a naval officer. He wasn't a soldier. He had no experience in administration. So he really focused his attention on what common sense told him was required. So improving sanitation, uh, sewerage, public works. He uh, made sure that the Cape Otway light was erected in the mid-1840s, and that uh, is a it continues to save lives to, to this day, as a matter of fact, uh, in its new form. He also formalised the, uh, the street layout of Melbourne, um, in, instituting other significant uh, public works like the, well, the foundation of the Royal Melbourne Hospital, the Philharmonic Orchestra, the University of Melbourne. All of these owe their existence to Latrobe in some way. Um, but I think most significantly for a, for a city like Melbourne that's known for its leafy experience, Latrobe was the man who reserved the parks and the gardens of the inner central city, including the, the Royal Botanic Gardens. Okay. It is uh, 14 minutes to 11 on ABC New England Northwest. We're talking to Dr Richard Scully this morning about a, a man very important to people from Victoria, Charles Joseph Latrobe. You're a Victorian, aren't you, Richard? I am. You are? Very, yes. And has, this been, has he been a key figure that you've kept your, your eye on over time? Yeah, absolutely. Ever since I was a little kid, I was, uh, was fascinated by this particular guy and uh, my Victorian bias tends to come through even though I'm up here now. <laughs> well, he makes his first speech in, in Melbourne... Um, what what did he want to say? What did he want to impart uh, to to the community about his role? Well, he was uh, speaking very much from his principles as well as from his emotional heart, that romantic as well as that reforming tradition. He's famous for having said that it's it's not by individual aggrandizement, by the possession of numerous flocks or herds, or by costly acres that the people shall secure the country enduring prosperity and happiness but it's by the acquisition and maintenance of sound religious and moral institutions without which no country can become truly great. So that really does sum up his approach particularly well, I think. Wow, how fascinating. So what do you know, do you know what kind of response he was receiving from the community? Did they like him? They generally didn't mind him, uh, but because of the way that this frontier settlement is developing, um, the squatocracy as it's emerging at the time do tend to clash with Latrobe uh, they feel that they should be the, considered the bearers of civilization, not the, uh, <laughs> not the governorship, as it were. So does he build a, a home for himself here? Yes, he does. Um, it was originally built in Jollymont in inner Melbourne, and it was uh, in a particularly significant area of, of, uh, of the city, uh, in amongst the bushland and the open parks of the area that are now the MCG and close to where the first ever game of Australian rules football was being played. <laughs> um his, his cottage is, is probably his most well-known memorial. It's still standing, although it was moved uh, to make way for the expanding Jollymont Rail Yards in 1963. It's, it's uh, been moved to the King's Domain, but it is probably one of the oldest buildings still standing in Melbourne. It's an amazing little timber and weatherboard single-storey place, Georgian building. It was brought out as a, a prefab from, uh, from England, and actually it's filled still with his uh, personal belongings. It's on the National Trust Register, and uh, I encourage everyone who journeys south to go and see it. A prefab? Was it the first prefab constructed in Australia? Well, a lot of these early buildings were. Uh, probably not the kind of prefabs we, we might be thinking of immediately. It's a, a different kind of construction. But yeah, yeah. How amazing. So what sort of little pieces of him himself have fascinated you when you've walked through the building? Oh, just the sort of knickknacks that lie around, really. I mean, there are, there are still uh, images on the walls of, of the family and the like, but I, I actually quite like just the, the funny little objects that hang around on tables and windowsills. <laughs>
So as he establishes himself and and works to, uh, I guess, draw the community together and establish different cultural institutions, what kind of agitation are you seeing to see the new state created? What kind of pressure is is going on to separate um, this part of Australia? Well, there is quite a significant movement, uh, particularly from 1840 when the Separation Association is, is founded. They... The people of Port Phillip, again, they're, they're sort of railing against uh, you know, the, 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 what they regarded as the heavy hand of authority. They're probably railing against being told what's law and what's not. <laughs> um, the, I mean, Latrobe probably never was terribly active in pushing for this, but he was certainly by no means opposed to separation and the formation of a new colony, as it was. Um, he was quite quite happy when uh, the colonial secretary Earl Grey actually made it part of policy and he was the obvious choice to act as the first uh, lieutenant governor uh, of, of Victoria and that his title actually reflects the fact that he was still considered to be junior to the governor of New South Wales. Mm-hmm. Um, he of course comes into this new role right at the moment when something that has been rumoured for a very long time is actually only just becoming well known, which is that Victoria is the richest goldfield in the world. Um, and Latrobe was initially, he was very reluctant to encourage this because he was committed to law and order and to maintaining a sort of a, a calm, um, civilised uh, society. Um, he tried to prevent information about gold strikes from being publicised, but once it was uh, made known, he announced it publicly and soon found himself absolutely swamped by a massive influx, probably one of the largest peacetime migrations in history. 100,000 people uh, enter Melbourne within three years, at least another 20,000 in Ballarat itself. How did he want that sort of gold rush problem of, of a sort of massive population increase to be managed? Did you think that, that they had the capacity to do it? I think that they were very hard stretched. One of the things that Latrobe is probably infamous for is for instituting the licensing system uh, for diggers to basically just try and uh, get some kind of income to maintain the standards of you know, sanitation and of, of civilization in this area. And of course, those licenses eventually lead to the Eureka Stockade, although after he has uh, moved on. Um, he's also at the same time clashing still with the big squatters, with the Melbourne City Council, the landowners, etc. And so he's finding himself in a really difficult position, particularly from 1851, when his problems really only con- continue to increase. So he's not really been in the in the role for very long, though. I mean, and then he's given this new role of lieutenant governor, and all these huge events are happening. How does he feel after his first full year in that role? Well, he's absolutely exhausted, um, not simply because of that first year and the, the revolutionary changes that are occurring in Victoria, but he has actually, in, in various roles, been there for at least a decade. And I think that the exhaustion stems not so much from the time he's been there, but the fact that he feels he's achieved basically all of his goals, and then suddenly this revolution in gold occurs, which undoes a lot of his work. He ends up resigning in December of 1852, But then he's told by the colonial authorities that he has to actually wait until his replacement, Charles Hotham, arrives, and he doesn't arrive until 1854. Um, In the meantime, he has to continue to deal with these kinds of issues, continue to become exhausted. (laughs) Uh, He's quite lucky in, in the regard that, I mean, he actually... Some of his memorials are instituted during this time, not least one of the largest gold nuggets ever found on an Australian goldfield is is named the Latrobe Nugget. It's in the, the Natural History Museum in London. And it's it's a great thing that he didn't leave in December of 1852 because he gave Victorians and Australians an even greater treasure 
1853 when he arranged the foundation of what's now the State Library of Victoria, the main reading room, which is an absolutely glorious space, is now named after him. So when does he retire? When does he actually officially step down? Well, he leaves in um, in 1854, uh, shortly after, it's, a, it's quite tragic as a matter of fact, uh, after he arrives back in the United Kingdom, his wife Sophie uh, dies on the 30th of January uh, of 1854, um, which really does just increase this sense of exhaustion that uh, not only he but also his family was experiencing. Uh, he, of course, survived uh, Sophie by many, many years, um, living on until uh, 1875, but uh, he didn't ever have another official appointment in his life, largely because he made the decision to marry Sophie's sister, who was herself widowed, Rose by her name. Um, but she, this is quite significant because in Britain in the 1850s, it is actually illegal to marry your deceased wife's sister. And it's actually at this time a massively charged political debate in Britain. So Latrobe is basically relegated to private life. He doesn't struggle, but he doesn't get to complete a lot of his projects. He doesn't get to write his memoirs, etc. Um, by all accounts, it was still quite a happy time for him. They still had two daughters. Um, to go with the son and the three daughters from his first marriage. But really, in many ways, it's a, it's a tragic end to what is a really quite a significant career. Why did he do it? Was it, was it a, again, a love match, or was it a political decision by him to support his, his, um, his wife's sister? Or? I think it has a bit of uh, both attached to it. I mean, this is a time, of course, when marriage is significantly an economic decision to simply, you know, to survive. Um, his, you know, his, his sister-in-law... Now his wife, uh, she'd lost her husband and, and there was a, an issue there as well. But I think that they, they must have been quite close. It's also often the case that um, in this particular period you see Victorians marrying close relatives uh, after they've lost their spouse simply because of the, uh, the very real connection that they still feel uh, to, to that lost person that they see in this, uh, this close relative. So. Four minutes to 11 on ABC New England North Coast. Dr Richard Scully is our guest and he's talking to us about another of our, our governors, Charles uh, Joseph Latrobe, this morning. So much is named after him, Richard. What, where can we start to count the Latrobe um, icons of Australia? It is a, it's an interesting one, it's almost like a university scav hunt. You could go around Melbourne and find them all. But uh, La Trobe University is probably the significant institution. Uh, La Trobe Street in inner Melbourne, of course, he was in, instrumental in laying out uh, Melbourne streets, the La Trobe Reading Room in, in the, uh, the State Library. But uh, it's interesting that despite all of these named uh, memorials to him, uh, many people think that he, he really still hasn't been given the attention that he deserves. In fact, in the early 2000s, there was a well-known sculptor named Charles Robb who actually wanted to point this out to, to Victorians and to Melburnians and Australians in general, just how odd that it was that their first most significant vice-regal appointment wasn't properly commemorated, particularly in the old Victorian stat uh, statue tradition, mm. a bronze statue. So he actually put one together, and it, it was absolutely brilliant. It was a great likeness of Latrobe in his vice-regal vice robes. Uh, it was up on an amazing uh, classic sort of pedestal with just Latrobe emblazoned on it in classic Victorian style. But Rob 
wasn't happy to just sort of finish there. He actually had it positioned upside down, so it was standing on its head. And and that was put just near Parliament Station in the Gordon Reserve in, in Melbourne. And the point was, of course, to show just how topsy-turvy people's priorities were. Latrobe's memory wasn't well established. Um, Latrobe Uni eventually purchased the statue. You can still see it. It's, uh, it's on one of their chief lawns, still standing proudly upside down. <laughs> so what is his legacy when you look back at what he achieved in sort of the, the, the cultural situations and the changes he brought to Australia? It's very difficult to put it down in, in bold terms because I think he just had such a significant foundation, foundational influence on so many aspects of Victorian and Melbourneian history. But for me, it has to really be Melbourne's parks. It has to be those those bastions of high culture like the State Library in particular. I mean, just whenever you sit in the Botanic Gardens, you're, you're sitting in the legacy of Charles Latrobe. Trobe.